pain. I come by it honestly, but like a distant shadow kept at bay on a sunny day, it walks with me. And this constant companion soon winds up the pace, paving the way to the stone-clutched hands and blinded blame. I'm doing everything it takes to stay in the race. But this domain, pain's lair, this space, the anti-grace, day after day, it drags me up, out, and away, unrelenting, despite what I may say, requiring a locked step with its terms, pain, that violent mainstay. But there has got to be a better way, an easy yoke, a light of day, one where mere effect and causality bow down to divinity, the one who is beckoning come. So step beyond. Catch your breath, hurts, rot, wrong. But now's the time to find healing to the depths. I have a question for you, and it goes like this. How valuable is freedom to you? What does it mean to you to be free? If I were to ask that to somebody in Ukraine right now, they would tell me that freedom means everything to them. And it's so valuable for them that they are even willing to lay down their life for freedom, and many already have. How about you? What does it mean for you to truly be free? You know, if you ask that question of people these days, you get all kinds of different answers, especially in our culture here in the States. Some people say that, you know, freedom is having no authority over your life except for yourself. Other people say that freedom is something you have to achieve or you have to earn a sacrifice for. Others would say that freedom is just following your feelings wherever they lead you. That's what it really means to be free. What do you think it means to be free? We're going to answer that question this weekend, wherever you are at one of our campuses, one of our venues, or watching us from your home, your apartment, somewhere around the world. I want to welcome you. We're actually starting a new season in our series going through the Gospel of John. And this season I've called pain, P-A-I-N. And all of us experience pain. And all of us are looking for wisdom and grace and strength to overcome that pain. Actually, we kind of started this series last weekend unofficially. If you're with us last weekend, I talked about how do, we, how do we find comfort in these troubled times? And when you think of trouble, I always think of pain. And if you remember the message, I said there are three things that we have to keep doing. Let's review it real quickly. Number one, keep your focus on Jesus. Number two, Trust in the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And number three, live with heaven in mind. Those are three things we focus on. If you missed it, you can go online and you can watch that message and see what we talked about. But let me ask you, how did you do with that over this past week? I'm going to guess that many of us struggle with it. I know it kept coming back to my mind and 
I kept having to remind myself, this is a daily discipline that I have to pursue, keeping my eyes focused on Jesus, trusting his spirit who lives in me as a follower of Christ, and remembering this is not the end, okay? I've got so much, you have so much to look forward to. Well, what I want to do is I want to keep exploring this whole issue of pain and how God, how God gives us victory, how God gives us hope in the pain, especially that we face in this world and well, even in our own lives. And I want to draw your attention to our next section of Scripture, which is found in John chapter 8. And we're going to begin at verse 31. Jesus is speaking. And he said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Uh, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you're descendants of Abraham. And yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. Wow, what an indictment Jesus kind of lays on them. And he makes several interesting statements in this passage of Scripture. I mean, is it really true that a person can indeed be set free? Does the truth really set you free? And if you know, if I were to ask that of people today, especially in our culture, I would probably get a mixture of answers. I would have some people say to me, no, that's not true. If you're talking about an absolute truth, then no, the truth can't set you free because absolute truth is repressive. Then we all have to, we all have to bow to somebody else's idea what truth is. On the other hand, someone might say to me, oh yes, that, that's true if, if by that what you mean is I can choose my own truth. I can kind of pick and design truth for myself. If that's what you mean, then yes, truth is so freeing because I'm living by my truth, not your truth or somebody else's truth. And the problem with that is, if that is true, then Jesus is a liar, isn't he? Because he said, I am the way, the truth, not a truth, not one form of truth of many truths, but I am the truth and no man comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 14, verse 6, we talked about it last weekend as well. So you have a conundrum, right? Either the culture is right, or I am right, or Jesus is right. And I think Jesus is right. He is the truth. And no matter how we try to, you know, share our opinions or ideas of what the truth is, it doesn't change what he has said. I mean, you could call, you know, the rain dry, you can call the desert an ocean of water, you can call hot cold and cold hot, 
but it does not matter. There is still truth. Rain is wet. The ocean is dry. Hot is hot and cold is cold. So no matter how we try to change things, the Bible tells us in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth may pass away, but my words never will. In other words, my words are the truth. So let me ask you another kind of question. What, what does Jesus mean when he says that, that his truth is the only truth? I mean, what's the source? Where's he coming from when he says, my truth is what will give you freedom? Well, think about this. What he's saying is that the truth that he's giving, and he said that in the passage several times that we read, is the truth that's coming from God. And God is sovereign. God is the one who created the world. He's the one who created us. He's the one who created morality. Therefore, God has the right to tell us what is truth, what works and what doesn't work, what we can depend on and what we can't depend on. Therefore, our opinions honestly don't matter. But you say truth is, you know, when you look at truth that way, it just seems so repressive. And that's why a lot of people, you know, they struggle with Christianity because they think it's so repressive. Well, you know, let's talk about being repressive or oppressive for just a minute. You know, in our world today, there are nations and there are governments that are very repressive, and especially toward Christianity. I don't know if you've been keeping up the news or not, but, you know, over in China right now, they've really turned the heat up against Christians. I mean, it has forced the church to go way underground again, and it's dangerous. In fact, the Chinese government is working on actually writing a different version of the Bible that edits into it communist ideas, and that's going to come out, and that will be given to the people. What, what's the problem with governments and nations like that? Why, why do they struggle with Christianity? Do you know why? Because they see Christianity, and I'm talking about true Christianity based on God's Word, they see it as radical, radically freeing, and they want to keep people under their domination, under their power. Now, as soon as I say that, I know what goes through the minds of some people. Some people are saying, and that's why we need to live in not a repressive society, but a permissive society. And the more permissive we are, the freer we are. And there's no doubt in my mind that our country, America, has become an increasingly so permissive in lots of ways. I was doing a little bit of reading the other day, and I came across some interesting information about millennials. And millennials is probably, you know, the age group around 24 to about 41, somewhere in there. And a survey was done in 2020, research was done, and it was really interesting. They discovered that that age group, about 24 to 41, that 61% or 6 out of 10 millennials claims to be a Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, wow, that's encouraging. <clears throat> I like to see that number go up, but 61%, 6 out of 10 are, are Christians. But, oh my goodness, here's what they mean when they say they are Christians. I just want to share this with you. They may call themselves Christians, but they are significantly, hear that? They are significantly less likely to believe in the existence of absolute moral truth. 
less likely to believe that God is the basis of all truth, less likely to believe that humans were created by God and in his image, less likely to believe that he loves them unconditionally. That's sad. And less likely to pray, worship regularly, and to seek God's will for their lives, which kind of leaves me with this question, what's really left to believe then if you call yourself a Christian? You say, well, that proves my point I'm trying to make. I can hear somebody argue with me. And that is, you know, millennials are, are treating Christianity that way because if you take just pure Christianity based on God's word, it is so repressive. I'm going to challenge that in the time we have left in this message and show you that actually a permissive culture, a permissive society is far more restrictive, repressive, oppressive than biblical Christianity than the truth that God gives to us. And you'll see what I mean here in just a little bit. All right? Now, everybody, okay, every last one of us, all right, is born without freedom. Okay, look what it says in John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. See, Jesus understands something that we don't really understand in our minds. And that is that we are born imprisoned. We are born without freedom. And nothing in this world is ever going to give us the freedom that we seek. Only the Creator, only God can give it to us. Everything else is an illusion. I mean, think about this for a minute. You were conceived, in a sense, you were conceived in a prison called a womb. And as soon as you tried to escape prison, somebody grabbed you and swaddled you in a straitjacket. And your whole life, we're, you know, we're, our whole lives, we're always trying to break out, so to speak. We're, we're looking for freedom, but everything we run to for that freedom ends up imprisoning us. Listen, all of us live, all of us live for something or someone that will give us a sense of validation, that will give us a sense of credibility, that will give us a sense that our life matters, that has worth. Because we find in our value, we find in our worth, we find in our purpose, what we think is this sense of freedom. Remember Rocky? There's a scene in one of the movies where Rocky is talking to Adrian, and Rocky says something like this. Yo, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I went just another bum from the neighborhood. Okay, that was a bad impersonation, but you get my point. Rocky says, I've got to achieve something. I've got to do something to prove that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. I have a question for you. How do you know that you're not just another bum from the neighborhood? How do you prove to yourself and to others, I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood? Well, whatever we look to to give us validation, to give us a sense of worth, actually becomes our master. And what that does is that introduces us to a, a myth. And the myth goes like this, all right? Freedom is having no master over your life except you. 
but here's the truth, okay? And the truth is freedom is having the right master over your life and over my life. It's living for the right person, the right reason. That's what gives us value. That's what gives us worth, having the right master. So, you know, a lot of people try to prove their worth or their value by things like their job, their work. And perhaps that's you. But you know, whatever you give your loyalty to find your worth, your value, give you a sense of freedom, give you a sense of control, that, that master, so to speak, will take over your life. It'll consume you. You know that thing that you're looking for that we just talked about with our Rocky illustration that will prove that you're not a bum? It actually, if it's not Christ, it actually, it actually drives you crazy. It'll ruin your life. How many people do you know that are workaholics? Maybe that's you. And your job, whatever it is that you're doing right now, is demanding so many hours from you, it's putting so much pressure on you, that if you are married, it's taking a toll on your marriage. If you have kids, it's taking a toll on your kids. It's taking a toll on your mental health, your emotional health, your spiritual health. You thought that that is what would make you free, and yet it's enslaved you. I remember when I was younger, and I was pastoring a small church full-time, about 80 people, I was going to uh, seminary full-time, and I was working a part-time job teaching at a school in order to be able to make ends meet and try to pay off my seminary bill. And we were living in Ohio at the time, and I remember my mom and dad would sometimes come down to visit us. They were up in Michigan, and my dad just loved to play with my, my son and my daughter. And I remember one day I was in the car with my dad, and we were talking, and he was letting me know that he'd just been having a lot of fun with my son, Ben. And uh, he said to me, he said, you know, I asked Ben a question. I said, what'd you ask him? Ben was about four or five years old. He said, I asked him, I said, does your daddy play like this with you? And he said to me, no. He says, my daddy's too busy with church and school. And I want to tell you something. That was a huge wake-up call to me. And I decided right then and right there, I had to make some significant changes because I don't want my kids to suffer because I am so enslaved by having to do my job and having to be in school and all the other things that take place. And that's the, you know, that's the challenge of our world today, isn't it? We have all these messages coming at us that tell us, this is what will make you free. This is what will make you feel good. This is what will liberate you. But all those voices only serve, only serve to try to govern and restrict, not free us, not free our lives. Even those, even the people who claim to be independent. You know, oh, I, I, don't, I don't need this. I don't need that. I'm an independent person. Nothing controls my life. Actually, independence is controlling your life. It's what keeps you from, you know, trusting others. It's what keeps you from committing to others. You're afraid of losing that independence. So that independence becomes the master over your life and my life. Well, the question is, why, you know, why does letting Jesus be Lord of my life, why does, that, why does that bring me freedom then? If you're talking about all these things that are going to repress me, how can you convince me that making Jesus Lord of my life isn't going to repress me because it sounds repressive? Well, look what Jesus said. He said in John chapter 8, verse 35, a slave is not a permanent member of the family, 
but a son is part of the family forever. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I bring you freedom because nobody else, nothing else can ever make you more part of God's family than me. Everything else makes you a slave. Everything else leaves you wondering if you'll be accepted, if you'll be loved or not. But I'm here and I'm here to make you a part of my family. I love what it says in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Wow. You hear what that say? Paul is saying, look, we are co-heirs with Christ, that whatever is his is ours. That he came to die our death so we could live his life. He took our past away. And he makes us sons and daughters of God. That is so powerful. It is so tremendous what God has done for us. You know, in the ancient days, the Roman times especially, when a couple was childless and they wanted to adopt, they hardly ever adopted babies or young children. Do you know what they would do? They would, they would watch youth. They would watch particular youth and that would be recommended to them. And they'd, they'd kind of at a distance watch their lives to see how they grew up, to see how they managed their teenage years, to see what kind of decisions they made, to see what kind of character they had. And if they proved themselves to be worthy, then they would engage them in the idea of being adopted and becoming their child. Why? Because they performed, they behaved, they earned the right to become their child. I am so glad that God doesn't treat you and me like that. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had to earn our adoption by being good? And in God's uh, sight, the only goodness that can be accepted is perfection. None of us would make it into the family. None of us. If it was all about performance. Even in our best human relationships, we have such a hard time loving unconditionally, don't we? I mean, sometimes if you're married, when your spouse, you know, really says something nasty or does something really mean, I mean, don't you find it hard sometimes to love them? I mean, how many marriages end in divorce? Or with your parents or with your kids or with your boss or your teacher or your coach? I mean, when you live in a life where love and favor and, and kindness toward you is all based on behavior and performance, yeah, it's a tough life to live in, isn't it? Because you never know if you are in or if you're out. It, has not, it not always has to do with your behavior. Sometimes it just has to do with their mood. Well, thank God, literally, thank God, his love for us is unconditional, has nothing to do with how good or how bad or how we behave every day. He loves us unconditionally. He'll never stop loving us. Now, we can walk away from that. We can say, God, I, I, you know, I'm tired of you. I don't want you. And, but God will never stop loving you, and he'll never stop loving me. We matter deeply. We matter greatly to God. Now, I want to dig a little deeper on this issue. And the reason I want to do that is because um, there's another master that tries to run our life. Everything we've been talking about so far is kind of outside of us. I want to talk about something that's inside of us. I want to talk about 
guilt and how guilt can oftentimes enslave our lives and keep us from experiencing and realizing the freedom that I know God wants us to experience in our life. You know, over in the book of Numbers, there's a verse, and at the end of the verse is a phrase that many of us are familiar with. It goes like this. But if you fail to keep your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord. And you may be sure, here it comes, ready, that your sin will find you out. That your sin will find you out. How many of you have ever heard that verse before, right? Or that phrase, at least, comes right out of the Bible. Be sure your sin will find you out. What does that mean? Be sure your sin is going to find you out. Well, sin sometimes in the Scriptures is personified almost like a creature. Remember what, um, what God said to Cain? He said, you know, when Cain was upset about his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's, God said, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It's waiting for you. James in, in the New Testament talks about sin as like these monstrous desires that war in us. In Romans chapter 7, Paul describes his struggle with sin in his life like it's a Jekyll and Hyde kind of a, a, a situation that's going on in his life, and which I'm sure each of us could attest to in our own lives as well. That struggle, right? That struggle to be accepted, that struggle to be loved when our guilt comes for us, when our sin comes for us. Does your sin ever come for you? Do you ever have thoughts in your mind or words in your mind or ideas in your mind that you know are sinful and you can't get rid of them? Have you ever said or done something in the past and no matter how often you pray, it still shows up in your mind and you feel so guilty over it? I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you get released from that? It reminds me of what happens in the early part of John chapter 8. There's that story there that I alluded to earlier where this woman is literally taken out of the bed where she's committing adultery with another man who's committing adultery, right? And she's dragged out in front of Jesus by the religious leaders. And they ask Jesus, what are you gonna, you know, what do we do about her? The law says she should be stoned. And they think they have Jesus trapped because if Jesus says, don't stone her, they'll say, ah, you have no regard for the law. If Jesus says, stone her, then he'll look like a hypocrite to the people for all the things he's been saying about mercy and grace. So what does Jesus do? Jesus bends down, it says, and he, he starts writing in the dust. And we don't know what he wrote, so I'm not going to try to guess. But he gets up and he looks at these men and he says to them, let he who is without sin go ahead and cast the first stone. And the text there in John 8 says that all of a sudden you hear stones dropping. From the eldest to the youngest, the religious leaders drop their stones and they walk away. Jesus goes back down. He's still riding in the dust and all that's left is him and that poor woman. And Jesus gets up and this is what he says. Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. He speaks the unchanging, uncompromisable, eternal word of God to her, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Now, 
you have a choice. You can go back to being enslaved again with promiscuity. Or you can live in the freedom that I've now given to you. That's his declarative word. That's his power. That's his capacity for you and for me to free us even from that internal shame and guilt that we might feel in our lives. Only Jesus can give you and me a freedom like that. Nobody else can. It's no longer about being good enough. It's no longer about performance and behavior, which then begs the question, okay, well, how do I get that freedom then? What does it take? Well, Jesus said this in John chapter 1, verse 12. It says about him, but to all who believed him, well, that's an important word, believed, and accepted him, he gave the right to become what? We already talked about this, become the children of God. It requires two things. It requires believing with all my heart and accepting him as my authority, accepting him as my truth, accepting what he has said as truth, and writing my life according to that and living for him. It's just really living up to his design of my life for what he always envisioned for my life. But there's one more slave master we have to deal with, and I saved it for the end. See, it's not just the things outwardly that can enslave me. It's not just my guilt that can enslave me. But listen, this is a myth. The myth out there today is that freedom is believing and accepting my feelings as the only truth that I need to live by. That's peddled hard by our culture. It's one of the most difficult masters to break free from, your feelings and my feelings. And the whole world markets to our feelings. And feelings, while there can be bad feelings and sad feelings, feelings sometimes are very excitable. Feelings can feel good. Feelings can give you a high. And we are a sexualized culture. It's around us 24-7. You can't escape it. And what is, you know, what's the whole sexual thing have to do with? It has to do with the body. It has to do with feelings. It has to do with the rise of emotions. No wonder it's, it's just rampant in our culture and our world today. And yet feelings, like I said, can be so repressive, so destructive in your life and in my life. Let me ask you a question. What are your feelings doing to your life right now? What are your feelings doing to your relationships right now? I mean, have you ever felt the war of feelings in your life? Isn't it amazing how like, like a person can, can, can feel like, I want to lose 10 pounds. But you can turn right around. You can say that in the morning, and at night you can say, I feel like eating a half gallon of ice cream, right? Or you can say, you know, I, I, I feel like just being pure with my thoughts, and then a few hours later, you're sitting in front of the computer and like, you want to look at pornography. Or you can say, I want, I, want to, I want to feel good about my spouse. I want to love my spouse and I want to be faithful to my spouse. And then turn around and start contemplating a relationship with somebody who's not your spouse at work or some other place. Now, I don't, I don't know what's freeing about that, right? That's a war. That's a, 
That's a horrible battle. And unfortunately, sometimes our feelings feel more powerful than the truth because they're part of our emotions, involve our body, our chemistry. They're sensational, and they're very alluring. And when you live in a culture that's constantly telling you that you'll You'll discover truth. You'll be the most fulfilled when you, when you experience your feelings. When you live in a culture where even the government wants to protect you so you can experience your feelings, even if it means that your parents will be prosecuted or will be fined or told they can't tell you that those are the wrong feelings. That's a scary place to be. That's a scary place to be. Because your feelings will drive your life into the dust. Your feelings will extract everything out of you and leave you empty. It reminds me of a true story. It's a historical story. It's about a man named Reynald III. Reynald III was a duke in what is modern-day Belgium. So he had money and he had power. They had a rivalry. He had a rivalry with his brother Edward. And uh, Edward overcame his brother Raymond, or, excuse me, uh, Raylan, and took his, you know, his title away from him and took his power away from him and then had Reynold imprisoned in a room that he built around his own brother. Can you imagine? So now this brother, Reynold III, who had all this power and this title, now is imprisoned in a room and his brother Edward had windows put in the room and he had a door put in the room. And he told his brother, the day that you can leave this room, because I'm not putting any guards there, the day you leave this room, you can have your title and you can have your little kingdom back. So what's that all about? What I didn't tell you is that Reynold III was also known as the fat. He was a very large person. And the windows and the doorway were constructed in such a way that that he would have to lose a lot of weight to be able to get out of that room. People would come to Edward and they'd say, how can you be so cruel to your brother? And he would say, I'm not cruel to my brother. He can lead there anytime he wants. Oh, by the way, Edward every day made sure that the most delicious food was brought to his brother, who's sitting in that room. You know, what else do you do? just consumed and consumed, became bigger and more obese. For 10 years, he stayed in that room while his brother ruled. And when his brother finally died, word has it, they literally had to remove part of the wall of that room as Reynold was then finally extricated and put on the throne where within one year he died. Why? Because of his health. You see, he had literally eaten himself to death. Or to put it another way, what we could say is he was consumed by his own passions. When you live for your feelings, your feelings consume you. They consume your life. You think you're free, but you're not. So what does it mean to be free? I think Jesus summed it all up in a verse that we've already read. 
when he said these words in John 8, 31, Jesus said to people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. Here it is. If you remain faithful to my teachings. If you want to be free, be faithful. If you want to be free, no matter what your feelings say, no matter what the culture promises, no matter how people try to change God's word or try to change Jesus, listen, stay faithful. Stay faithful to Jesus, who is the Son of God. Stay faithful and unmovable on his word. And listen, you will truly be free. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your promises. God, as we live in this world that would offer us all kinds of masters to run our life, we want no other master except Jesus. And we want no other form of truth except the truth, which is your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.